Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Hey, welcome to the Food Talk. You need a microphone to make this thing work. Hey, got a great show today. We have a couple of guests. Well, I've got at least a couple of guests. We'll see how many actually show up. Um, but in studio with me now, it's a pleasure to have Shane McBride, who is really a badass chef. I met Shane years ago when he was... I don't, were you like a sous chef, a line cook with the, at Les Benas? I was still a line cook when I still made Still a line cook yeah. at Les Benas. Christian Delouvrier was one of my mentors. That was really one of his greatest epic... Points in his career, he'd taken over a legendary restaurant where Gray Coons had earned four stars from the New York Times. Christian came in and did an entirely different menu, entirely different style of cooking, a real, real kind of roll of the dice because you know the critics are going to come back and pretty hard to replicate four stars and four stars back to back in the same space with different chefs, but he did. It was a great disciplined kitchen. You, Craig Kiketsu, was in that kitchen. Yep. I think Corey Lee might have been in that kitchen. He was. Which is crazy because Corey's now one of the, you know, went on to work for Thomas Keller at Per Se, then the chef at the French Laundry, and now he's one of the biggest guys in San Francisco. Yep. You're the chef at, well, you are the chef at Balthazar, but you're really the chef for Keith McNally's New York restaurants. Yeah, uh, I do all the restaurants except for uh, Minetta and Morandi. Which is, I mean... It's a couple of places. A couple of places that do a little volume. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're here to talk about this book that came out. Regina Nadelson's also in studio with me. Of course, I didn't bring the book cover. What's the name of this book? It's at, at Balthazar. Balthazar. At Balthazar. I took the book cover off so I wouldn't mangle it. Um, which is great. So it's the story of this place that seems like it's been there forever to people that are kind of new to New York. Um, and it's funny. There was that... Uh, you were, you were just talking about Eater a few minutes ago. That... Um, I guess there was like some buzz on the anniversary date, and I think Lockhart Steele had a remembrance of his experiences there. And then uh, um, their food work, Ryan Sutton, had a piece a few days later that wasn't like the greatest thing, right? It was no. <laughs> I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> you know, it was that sort of. I'm going to save my comments on that. Yeah, let's do it. Oh, I won't necessarily because I'm not really in the food trade. Yeah, so and I know Ryan I really can well. Comment. I know Ryan really well, so it's really funny. But it's like this quintessential. So let's go back. Let's just tell because Keith's a really funny guy. Um, I was living, I moved here in 82, and my first apartment was an illegal sublet in a Mitchell Lama building, 310 Greenwich. Avenue in Tribeca, right across the street from where Tribeca Grill is today. But in 82, nothing, there was nothing, no dry cleaners, no supermarkets, no nothing. Tribeca was an industrial warehouse neighborhood. Um, Odeon had been open, but that was about it. Uh, for food, I mean, I would just walk to Chinatown my day off for food and six packs of beer and stuff. And Odeon came, and it was that, that was like the original core. It was Keith. He was still partnering with his brother, Brian. His future wife would be involved in that. Um, 
after a couple of restaurants later, Cafe Luxembourg and a few others, they sort of split ways. Keith went his way and Brian another. And I, it's funny, I, you did you meet Brian ever? I think I met Brian many years ago at a place called 150 Worcester that was so hot. I remember New York Magazine published a seating chart. I think I was working for The Guardian or one of the papers in London. And it had made the news even there. And I think that's the only time I met him, actually, because this, all of that was... I was not cool when Odeon was running. Well, it, they couldn't have been more different. I mean, Brian was this charming, affable, good-looking guy. His wife was a beautiful ballerina. He was just a piece of shit. He was terrible. He, was the worst. he would open restaurants, get really busy, <laughs> pocket a shit ton of cash, and then just close the restaurants and leave everybody in a lurch. He was I didn't kind of, know all kind of that. kind of guy that would pay his Hispanic workers under the table and then send them a 1099 at the end of the year, like, really? I remember these kids coming to me with the time of the going, you know, asking me, what is this thing? And I said, how are you getting paid? Cash. <laughs> Can he give you a 10 And he ended up, he ended up, I think, screwing so many people, Brian, that he just was sort of tossed out of the New York restaurant. I think he lives in Vietnam now or something. Yeah, he does. Um, but Keith was the opposite. Keith was the straight player. Keith yeah. did it right. So after that sort of separation, as I understand it, and from your book, Keith went back Overseas, made a couple of movies. Went to Paris. Went to Paris. Was back involved in his first <coughs> love. Um, and we should also mention, because it's in the book as well, that he grew up. I didn't realize. So he's a few years older than me. He was born in 52 or 3. Something like that. Yeah. and But in the east end of <coughs> London, that at that point, post-World War II, was still this sort of bombed out, crater-strewn... It's hovel. It's really interesting. I mean, I've lived on and off in London for so many years that I know a bit about it. And I have a lot of friends who are Keith's generation. And, of course, it, you were still completely oppressed by the class system. I remember, I mean, I don't remember early enough to remember bomb sites, but, but you heard about it and you knew about it. And, of course, the East End that he grew up in, until way past that time, was still a very hardcore. There were parts that were Jewish. There were parts that were Irish. His dad was a dock worker. Stevedore, yep. And the reason it was was when you got to the docks, the nearest place you could more or less walk to, whether you were an immigrant or you came from Ireland or you came from the north of England, was the East End around Whitechapel. And, you know, it was really hard times. I mean, hard to imagine now, really. And um, he never went to a restaurant until he was 15 or 16 years old. I mean, people yep. didn't. Right. One of his best friends, it says in the book, had a, because the houses were so badly damaged, had a house, but they had an outhouse. Oh, yeah. And Keith was lucky because even though his house had been destroyed, the house usually, he was living in basically like a cinder block kind of, what do you call it? Like they were prefab, Prefab temporary housing, but at least you get running hot water and a toilet that I know loads of people who grew up without indoor plumbing, who grew up uh, without heating. In fact, when I first went to live in London in the 70s when I was a student, I lived with two other girls in a house that had no heat. Now, I was a middle-class girl from Manhattan. I had never heard of not having heat in a right. place, and I bought an electric blanket, and they made me pay the whole electric bill. <laughs> and it's, London's cold, it's cold, famously cold and wet. Yeah. It's funny you're saying, you know, like Soho, and we were talking about Tribeca, how different they were. Where Keith grew up, uh, I, I when we opened Balthazar London, I spent a lot of time with him over there, and we went to a restaurant called Braun, which is in Hackney, which is where he grew up. And after we had dinner, we walked out, and he's like, this is where I grew up. He's like, my house is right here. It was literally around the corner from the restaurant. Wow. And now it's like the big Columbia Street flower market on the weekends. It's totally 
completely gentrified. No, the East End, it's where all the art is, yeah. loads of restaurants. Um, but he was like giddy, like... This is where my house is. Yeah. yeah, and he's a funny guy because yeah. he's really. We've. I've been lucky enough, mainly because I've known you. Um, you know, he's not. I want to say press phobic, but he's not out there courting the press. No, not at all. He doesn't have a publicist that's sending out. Come by. Here's our new brunch. You know, the, all the stuff I normally get in my inbox uh, and, and phone calls. He's just sort of like, let's open up these great spots and let's just do really good. Relatable food that's consistent and delicious, yeah. and people are going to come. I mean, it took me ten years, more than ten years, to convince them to let me do this book, and right. or to sit down. Right. And finally, we sat down together, and I said, "I said you don't read much fiction," and he said, "No, I prefer history." And I said, "Oh, I'm pretty good on English yeah. history." Who was the first tutor? Yeah, who was the first <laughs> tutor? And I failed the test, and then he said, oh, do your book. And I have to say, once he gave me permission and told everybody to talk to me, there was never another conversation. I mean, I didn't have a contract. And, of course, what Keith has, there's a particular English thing to do with amateurism. I mean, until very recently, you didn't really talk about that stuff. You know, look at Wimbledon. I mean, people didn't even get paid for playing tennis for a very long time. Professionalism was a dirty word. And so there's this idea of kind of let's do the show right here. And talking to people about Balthazar when it was built, they got this leather warehouse, they tore it apart, and then they looked at it and said, so what should we do? I mean, I think to Keith, and I won't quote the whole quote about what he said about another owner, but I think the word hospitality industry gives him indigestion. The idea that this would be corporatized or professionalized and not have any spirit in it. And you have, there's tons of great anecdotes about the sort of idea of him just sketching things on napkins. And he goes, he still to, his, does that. goes to his business partner and says, you know, I have this idea. And his, his own, his, I think he still is the one investor had a space and it was too small. It was like 2,500 square feet. And he says, no, you know of another space. Let's go look at it. What do you think? And um, it wasn't a pittance in 1996. $2 million was still a lot of money. But it was a complete build-out of an enormous restaurant because the footprint of Balthazar isn't just what you see looking at the ground, uh, through the window. That's the dining room and the service kitchen, which I still can't believe how small that. That's still, to me, Chef, is astonishing that you pump that volume. How many... Cooks physically fit in the service kitchen upstairs. Seven. That and with no room to move. No, I mean they stand in one spot. Literally, because there's not much more. I mean, there's like ten burners and a grill and an old-fashioned. Bro- I mean, there's not a lot of equipment. No, in they that. hate it when I go back back there. I there is no room. <laughs> uh, so, so the footprint upstairs is matched by a footprint downstairs, where a lot of the press gets a it's lot of the double. prep gets done. It's double the double. size. Yeah, it goes from Broadway to Crosby. Okay. It's a whole city block. Yeah, Yeah, no, the downstairs is amazing. amazing. And it never really shuts down. No. Um, So Keith comes here, kicks around, gets lucky enough to get a job at 1 Fifth Avenue, which was a big deal back then. Um, I forget who the chef was, Fatusi maybe. It was one of those, it was one of those early prefixed expensive restaurants. And because he's charming and he's good looking and he's open up oysters behind the bar, he sort of gets a, already a, and a group of followers. All the young Brits were there. Anna Winter, who became the yeah. uber Vogue. head of Vogue. Um, Lorne Michael used to bring, it was where they had the after party for Saturday Night Live. So they're all, you know, it's like. The 70s, which was a very different time in New York, and you could pretty much do what you wanted if you were sexy. And um, that's how he really, that's his PR. I mean, I've lots of people have said to me over this book, so who's the PR? Who should we call? And I'm 
Uh, you can call the chef. Yeah, there is <laughs> chef, none. There, there is none. There is none. I've because again, because I've been doing this TV show, I, I've always wanted to do a piece on something. And he's there was no. It was like this nut that you couldn't crack. And luckily, I've known Shane a long enough time that Shane sort of got me behind the door. And I guess the first piece piece we did, Keith liked it enough that we ended up doing a couple more yeah. as you guys have expanded. But so we'll start with Odeon and then get the Balthazar. But I want to stay with Odeon because it was really interesting how. Back then, the restaurant scene in New York, I mean, it's such a different city. Um, south of 50s, I mean, it was like 57th Street was where all the restaurants were, sort of the East 50s. The Le La restaurants, the Lutece, Le Caravelle, Le Colipoff, that's where everybody ate. The Four Seasons was a little further. But though that was the epicenter of the food scene. Uh, you had the theater district, which was always busy because you had a million people coming in to eat. But those restaurants weren't terribly good. They were kind of catering to the idea that you were going to make your money off the first seating, and it didn't really matter because you had to get them out the door by 7 because the curtain was caught. Um, then south of 42nd, there was really nothing. 34th Street was an odd kind of block. Uh, forget 23rd Flatiron was dead. I remember walking. My first job was at the Four Seasons, and to save money and stay in shape, I used to take the subway to the Four Seasons for my shift and run home at night. And I, and I was just so I'm going from the East 50s down to Tribeca and just winding my way through the city just to learn what this town felt like and where the streets went because Tribeca was off the grid. Once you hit Soho, you're kind of in, in the West Village. You're kind of in your own little no man's land. Um, but but Odino was really this crazy idea because nobody was eating down there. And he sort of already had that talent for... Like that, he took over an old diner, kept some of the fixtures, cleaned it up, made it cool, put the big lights outside, and it was the spot. Saturday night, well, I mean, everybody that was everybody, Andy Warhol, Basket, everybody every, went there. Everybody went there, and his, and his choice. I, I'm not sure it's in the book, but he picked a, a African American kid named Patrick Clark as his opening chef, and which is really, I mean. I grew up in Philly, so I'm, I was in the kitchens in Philadelphia were blacks, Italians, and Irish guys. And then they weren't chefs. They were just ex-Marines and you know, street people. That's, that's who we were. Yeah. It was, restaurant scene wasn't like that. And I came to New York, and I, there was really like no black chefs, no black line cooks. It was just, there were Puerto Ricans and Dominicans back then. Patrick was really something. He was a really great guy. His son's the chef at Lord. No oh, kidding. is he? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, oh. Patrick died young. He was a Patrick on the green. Chef of the Opened his own restaurant. Um, it was on the cover of one of the Britsky books called Metro. And then he died of a heart attack a couple of years later. I mean, that was is... the great thing about Odeon. It was hip. It was like all of Keith's restaurants. It was impossible to get in. But once you were through the door, they treated you well. And that was a very crazy. I mean, my theory always was in, in the sort of hip restaurants from the 70s on, the reason there were bathroom attendants was they wanted to make sure people weren't Doing certain substances. I mean, the bathrooms. They still were. They, they still were the. But they the, probably sold them. But the food was great. That was the other thing, yeah. and that's really, I think, an important element. But people were afraid to go to Odeon. No, I remember Karen and Waltuck. Karen and David Waltuck when they first opened Chanterelle, which was the middle Soho, Grand and Green, back when nobody was down there. And Gail Green's one of the one of the writers from New York Magazine that did finances lived upstairs. Told Gail Green about this great place downstairs. I don't even know if I had the liquor license yet. Gail loved it. Wrote a glowing review in New York Magazine and the big deal back then. And Karen and David have these stories of like couples coming down from the Upper East Side in a cab, slowing down, kind of looking, <laughs> looking around because it was the only light on the corner. There was all the lights in the. It was like, how are we getting home, honey? And they would just drive away. That was 
that was Soho, that was Tribeca, that was those neighborhoods. And the other thing, of course, to remember is the city was in was in the toilet. Yeah. I mean, the seventies and even into the early eighties, New York was bankrupt. It was when Gerald Ford said to New York, "Drop dead," the yep. famous Post headline. But I think. The thing that was odd for me, of course, there was a restaurant scene in Greenwich Village, even at the time, as you say, the fancy restaurant scene was uptown. So you had this weird little pocket, but people thought it was like something out of on the town. You know, you went to a place with a checkered tablecloth and candles in the wine bottle. Yeah, you made a Coke, the Coach House, Strass, Longchamp, John's Pizza on Bleecker. I mean, those, those restaurants are institutions. They've been there forever. So we'll get back to Balthazar. So it's 1996 or seven. He's got an investor. So we've got the deal is you 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 lend me the money. We'll we'll split this business. We'll we'll make it work. No, you give me the money. Give me the money. <laughs> they build the thing out and brown papers covering the windows. Now by that point, I was had had been in New York a while, and I traveled. My wife was my girlfriend. Then is my wife now was a pastry chef, and so like all young aspiring chefs, every every vacation we had in the summer, we go to France, and we save up all of our money and do a couple of three star restaurants, a couple of two star restaurants, and then all those famous bistros. So I knew what Flo looked like. I knew what Florentine looked like. I knew what all the all the brasseries and you you name them. We'd pretty much been and. and in Paris, it was like a charm to those places, those tile floors and the high ceilings and the mirrors. And the people you'd see. I mean, I did once see Sartre eat a, a hot fudge sundae. <laughs> I mean, And the wait staff was super pro. I mean, I just remember watching these guys, like, carrying these full-on 50-pound trays with, like, an eight-top and just, like, sliding into the table like they had or on ice skates. It, just not, it was... And when the first time I saw Balthazar, I was just like... Did he pick this thing up? Yeah, it's pretty transporting. And drop it from like the 16th Alamo Small to this corner. Yeah. It was just like the guy had an eye. Yeah, that restaurant was the beginning of like Keith being able to cure it. Like you're saying, chef, you're drawing stuff on napkins, and and then back then I'm sure he didn't have it, but since then, you know, he's got people that work for him in Europe that go to flea markets and go to yeah. auctions and pick up. Stuff. And of course, people I know a guy who's one of Balthazar's famous drunks at the bar. I've known him forever. He's an English guy, and he's still trying to convince me that it's old. And I'm like, it isn't old, really. It's not old. That's what's so marvelous about yeah. it. It's there's better. A guy, there's a guy, Chris, who does all the odd construction jobs and stuff like Polish that. Guy? Yeah, Polish guy. Yeah, Polish Chris. Yeah. Polish In the book. Chris. Yeah. I mean, the the marvelous thing is, it's better than old. It's yeah. good. Yeah. And I think people mistake old for good. It isn't always and you good. were so lucky a year ago. I can't believe that big-ass mirror fell one night and didn't kill anybody. Well, you know, everybody says it, but it fell. You know, like you can't see it on radio, but it literally kind of went like like that. Slow motion. Yeah. So people got out it's of the way. It's on a 1,000-pound piece of steel. Okay. You know, the guy that hit his head, he jumped up into it. And, and he I was missed also it. 80 years old. Yeah, no, it's an amazing. So if you haven't seen the restaurant, you walk in, there's this glass and wood vestibule that's beautiful. The tile, I mean, you just it yeah. looks like a, like a completely authentic 150-year-old, you know, it's a little better than Lamy Louis. You ever been to Lamy Louis? Yes, yeah. that's, that's gross. not gross. I mean, the, yeah, the, the trip down to the bathroom at Lamy Louis does not remind you of the, the, the rope. The rope, and then no. the, the, I remember my wife saying, the women's room, it was a hole in the ground. Yeah, yeah. I'm not interested in a hole in the ground. I want yes. a bathroom. Say, for, for guys, it's a little easier. Yeah. Like, whatever, I can yeah. aim. But aim. No, I was like, but you did it for the fogger on the roast chicken. But anyway, so it opens, and he just nails it. It becomes one of the most successful volume. And who was the original team in the kitchen? Was it Riyadh? Lee, yeah, Lee, Lee and Riyadh, yeah. So that was... How long were they with Keith until they... 16 years. 16, yeah. which is another thing about Keith. Um, we did a piece with you. And your GM was with Keith, left, came back. 
Yeah, Aaron. Uh, Aaron's been there almost since the beginning. She worked um, in the bakery. She, she worked, worked bakery. as a, a waitress. She didn't really had- leave as per se as she went to go do a different job for Keith. And you have you have guys in the kitchen. I've been there seven years. Which is so you're like the newbie. Yeah, you're still reading the manual. You're like on page eighty or something. You haven't gotten to the middle of it yet. Um, but you were t- pointing out to me like that that guy's been with us for twenty years. Yeah, that's his son, or that's two of his brothers. Yep. I mean, it's basically once Keith finds good people to work at this restaurant, because you're going to I, we're going to do the facts and the figures in a minute. But once you get good people, you just keep them. Like yeah, they don't leave. It's I have to tell you, they love Shane. They have said to me there. privately, he's not a screamer. Well, he's the real goods. He probably has mellowed over the years. I'm I guessing. Have, yes. We all, I think, all of us, all of <laughs> us when we were screamer. younger, we did because we came. I mean, you worked for Christian. Christian wasn't easy. I worked for Christian. I worked for Seppi. I worked for you know a bunch of European guys, and it was sort of like we couldn't wait till it was our turn yeah. to be the chef and it's just a, like a like a fraternity. Basically, yeah. Now it's my turn. I can haze now. I can haze now. And then I, I remember like, all this morning. I remember one point I had my restaurant down in South Jersey, and I was just I threw some kid out of the kitchen, told him to go wash his Mustang. He couldn't do I'll get on his line. Fuck you. And then I just remember thinking. I like, made a guy stand in the corner one night with his nose in the corner. You didn't tell me that. <laughs> he didn't tell me that. And then I that. remember like suddenly like this, this thing above your head just goes, that's not a great idea. That's not how you get the best out of people. Yeah. I know it feels good at the moment. I know it satisfies some itch that you have to scratch. But if you want to get good work out of people, don't treat them like And you know, it's shit. such a macho thing that when you read books like Bill Buford's book, you think, why? Why? Why are you such assholes? Because you're men? Because you can't? I mean, it's well, sort it's of... Environment. It's the environment. It's the environment. It's, but yeah. it's also other You're people. standing in a hot room for 14 hours. I, I always said it's just like sports yeah. teams. I mean, you're, yeah. when you're playing services, much like the game is on, bell rings, bang, you're out there. And yeah, so you have to be in shape. You have to be young. You have to be fit. You're you're sweating. You're burning yourself. You're going to get cuts. Yeah. And it's, it's just this sort of like, who has time to take a leak? You just We're in this together. It's a little kind of like... Kind of like the Marines versus the football team versus yeah. the. But isn't it a thing unto itself? It's like young lawyers have to stay till one in the morning. In fact, I I had a friend who already had children. She said, "I can't do that. I'm on the mommy track." She said, "Of course, they're not doing more than I do. I do more because I'm efficient." But it's part of the culture. Yeah. You have to do that stuff. I think yeah. it's probably changed a bit because the workplace has become a little bit more civilized. But when you came up, it cost so much money now to. Pay people. When I came up, you know, like you, we would break down the kitchen at the end of the night, yeah. and we didn't get paid for it. We now you, for, you can't do that now. We got paid for. I, I would say from when I started at the Four Seasons through the Maurice, because those were both those houses were union houses, yeah. which you wouldn't realize that, but they were. It was local one hundred six or whatever one or whatever. Uh, it, but it, it, regardless of that, we came in early. We stayed late. We never got in minutes overtime. What Christian Delouvrier, my chef at the Maurice, would do because that's where I spent like a, two and a half years. He would kind of he would say you know if you cover for this sick guy if you work this extra shift if you can do doubles for me when summertime comes I'll give you an extra week extra vacation week, yeah. and, and that's the only payback that you got yep. so instead of getting like ten days or two weeks you get like two weeks an extra four or five days but that would, we I mean we were working thousands of hours that we weren't sure. getting paid for with that but let's not sentimentalize the past too much because <laughs> there was no room in the past for women. Yeah. There was no room in the past for a lot I of... I worked with lots of women in New York City kitchens. Some of the best cooks that I've worked with have been women. There you go. Without a doubt. There aren't from, any at Balthazar. From Shane? Well, uh, There are in the pastry kitchen. 
And that's just, different. No, but that's kind of that's, that's they all come from the Culinary Institute. No, and they want to make of, pretty things. And no, I've and had no, this, we've had this discussion about. You know, I call them white boys, guys like what you and I went through. We're white boys. Yeah. And then there's the the Latin guys that work at Balthazar. Yeah. Those guys are lifers. You're the great. Yeah. I mean, they're they're the nuts and bolts of the. Yeah. When I, I was I had the um, I'd worked at a lot of fine dining when I came to New York. I was the Four Seasons. I was at Cellar in the Sky at Windows in the World, which is a little tiny thirty seat restaurant that sold out months in advance. Kevin's really did the wine. I'd, and then I, I was at the Maurice in between for two and a half years. So it was three stars. And then after. After I left uh, Windows, I was, because you're a young guy and you want to have a resume, you're always thinking, like, you know, what's my next? You, you got to have a five year plan. I'm like, your weak spot is volume. And I heard through the grapevine, Tavern on the Green was looking for a night chef. Frankie Crispo was on his way out the door. He was going to leave. And I'm like, and they paid. And I'm like, Warner Leroy, if you're going to do volume, that was the number one restaurant in America. 34 million was until yeah. Tau Vegas, they were it. Yeah. But, and, of and, but I remember working, and our kitchen was almost entirely Dominican and Puerto Rican. And these kids from the CIA would come down. Yeah, they're little necker shifts. And extra egg and booth in there. And they're, they're, and they're, and they're thermostat. And I'd be like, you know what? You, you, why don't you trail with this Dominican kid, Orlando and Isidro, these two brothers? And if you can last a night, we'll hire you. But get ready for pre-theater. Get ready for the first seat. And we would just watch these guys just like get buried. Yeah. It was like watching a guy get a surfboard paddle out and just You know, when you say on the CIA to someone like me, I'm thinking spies. Oh, no. Come on. No, no, everyone else. So, Shane, talk about the numbers you're doing now because it's pretty astonishing. Well, let's not, we don't need to talk about December numbers, but average covers per day, 1,700? Yeah, pretty much. Busy brunch? Uh, busy, mild busy is 600. Super busy is 1,200. How many employees total? Um, I mean, it varies year to you know, throughout the year, but we have, I think right now we're at like 270. But that, the real story, of course, because the reason restaurants exist in my mind, since I'm not a cooking person at all, I'm the world's worst cook, as Shane will attribute. Then you go out to eat a lot, and that's good. I go out to eat a lot, but what I care about are two things. That the food is good is a given in New York. Nothing is going to last if the food isn't good, or very, very rarely. What I care about is how I'm treated. And that's the other side of of the story, as the Balthazar story is. Finally, I mean, when I started, the man who was still Keith's backer said, what do you think the magic is here? And I said, in the end, I think people leave feeling good. Well, you're, what's the average age of your servers? These aren't like 23-year-old oh, dancers. No. You've got career men and women who are really proud to be front of the house because, let's yeah. face it, it's a great 30s. job and you can make a lot... 30s. Mid-30s? Yeah, I mean, the but night that my... there were some who were 60. Yeah, sure, the yeah. night that you and I ate there with my son a couple of years ago, I think our, our server was in her 40s and had been there for, for most of her career. Yeah. Makes a great living. As you're doing those kind of volumes, the check average is solid. People are tippers. He's got a great front of the house. It's just And great. it's also that I think that the Balthazar wait staff is, is kind of the modern equivalent of the professional waiters of Europe. Yeah. I mean, except they're much nicer, and they don't have dirty napkins over their arm. But but they are they're really nice. They're interesting people. They're architects. They're yeah. There's a, there's a we've had a couple of lawyers. They're lawyers. Yeah. They're people who can talk to you. They care about it. They know the regulars. And the other thing is, people are treated really well. When I mean, Aaron, the GM, told me that they look at the reservations every day, and if there's someone who's never been there, there's a mark next to it. Treat them extra special, even if they're from Dubuque or something. I mean, it's a single diners. It's a real lesson. Women diners get a glass. I mean, I know everybody thinks I sort of suck up to Balthazar and that it's a sentimental thing. 
But it's a really nice place. You look around and people are having fun. Oh, you walk through the door. It's just, it's, it's, like, it's like a drug. Yeah. I mean, literally, when you go through that, when you step off a spring onto that, into that, through that vestibule, there's just a buzz. Even the sound level. I mean, like, everything is dialed in perfectly. Yeah. These super high ceilings. The lighting. The, everything. I mean, I was just saying, I, I had my first and only dinner so far is your newest restaurant, Augustine, down in the Beekman Hotel, which I have to tell you was oh. one of the most beautiful rooms I've been in period not I, to it, mention the food oh the food's ridiculous but I just remember the glow of that room there's like so there's I don't know how he captured no, that. He nailed it, that there's just this lighting and I everybody mean, looks great and that night everybody that was everybody was there and I'm sure it was like that for weeks on end but I mean, even was, even Chino and I look good in that light <laughs> it's true but I mean I had written about four chapters simply about the lighting and the editor said you know I don't think people are that interested in the technology of restaurant lighting but it is so carefully done and so perfect and I think it was probably Gail Green who said you look like you've just had a facial when you go in there no it matters and it just I, and, and there's just a buoyancy and a happiness to it and yeah. you, there's a sense of space and people having fun at the tables and you want to be a part of that yeah. I mean it's just a very addictive thing and, and you know you're talking to someone who spent a year and a half in there more or less to the point where Shane found me one day at the bar in the afternoon looking I'm like can't you put something else on the menu he said well what do you want I said I want a grilled cheese sandwich he said right right there goes to the kitchen and makes the recipes in the book makes the best grilled would you care to describe the uh, grilled just, uh, cheese like with a chef truffles. grilled cheese sandwich it's clarified butter and four, four different cheeses and truffles some truffles and pull and loaf cut the yeah. crust off great Balthazar bread yeah right that's it right nice color boom turn it over good call on the other side yeah. perfect cut and it homemade potato chips done in goose fat yeah well the fries I mean we could talk about the fries I mean oh. that is there's a couple of people that do nothing so it's some of the best French fries in the city because you're getting idle potatoes by the truckload, taking them downstairs, peeling them, uh, cutting them on the, the little machine that's attached to the wall. There's got to be a name for that thing. Is there, is there a name for that thing? We call it the fry puncher. I think the Times called them the platonic or the Napoleonic ideal of French fries. Into a 50-gallon <laughs> sanitized trash can made out of plastic like full of water yeah. to pull the starch out. Yeah. And then they're fried. They sit overnight. Sit yeah. overnight, blanched in the morning by like the hundreds of pounds in 275-degree, 285-degree fat till they get that look that oh, we know. I'm so hungry. Taken out, and then it's cool. service picked up and done the right way. Yeah. I mean, it's just classic. Yeah. We had we were having you know, we we go through so many french fries the the fryer upstairs, I mean, we clean them nightly, but there's so much grease on them and they they it's like looking at an old hot rod when they could light the the exhaust, they put the lighters on the back of their cars to light them up. It's like blue flames coming out of the fryer cuz they they never go below 400 degrees. Because there's always so many fries in them. It just yes. keeps going and going yeah. and going. Constantly cycling, yeah. constantly going, yeah. constantly going. And you're using peanut oil still? Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is yeah. like the classic. So freaking expensive. But yeah, you can go much <laughs> cheaper. Yeah. But I was like a kid. I mean, I really did this book because I wanted to see the kitchen. I'd been there every morning, and we looked at people who got to go behind the kitchen doors as though they'd been had passes to the stones at, backstage. And that's really why I did it. And it's a whole... Other world, it yeah. really is the volume, the stuff, the people. The yeah, the organization. I mean, that's the idea of of the getting that going in that walk in the walk in boxes yeah. and seeing everything labeled and dated and recycled and so you know, first thing like that, da, 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 following all the right rules of basics, and it's like I, a big machine. We we did a book thing the other day, and we were, somebody was talking about the mechanics of Balthazar, and it, uh, that day something had happened that really I thought was pretty interesting. 
where there's a the host at the doors have sort of a uniform that they wear, and they they have to wear a set of pearls, and they didn't have the somebody didn't have their pearls because they take them home and inevitably they forget them or you know whatever somebody steals them from them. And Aaron's like, God damn it, where are the fucking pearls at? <laughs> we have a box of pearls in the office. For just this. Just for that. I, I mean, mean that's like the minutia of what happens at Balthazar. It's just spectacular. The amount of stuff, as I said in the book, when I before I got to know my way around the basement, I really thought I was going to die there. Because it's completely, it's a nightmare. It's the most ramshackle, hard-to-find-your-way-around <laughs> place. And, and the worst part was, Shane would say to me, the morning pastries come in from the Balthazar Bakery in the morning. And he'd say, oh, help yourself. And I thought, oh. if I touch one of those sticky buns, yeah. I won't be able to get through the door at the no, end of th- this book. Those, those days are gone. And you had a great perch, actually, because part of your perspective for writing this book is you lived around the corner. Yeah. So you remember the, I mean, you had this quaint story of, like, you back Back in the day, like the homeless had names, like people knew them, and there was the guy that was schizophrenic. There was the guy that had the you know there was like cardboard there box Ben and huh? They're still they're back like now. Yeah, they're still they're back. back. Yeah, I've seen this all over town. I think I think that Bloom, um, not Bloomberg. Uh, uh, what's his face? The or what's our, what's our mayor's name? De Blasio. De Blasio. De Blasio. Right. He had this big thing trying to trying to. Is, he is doesn't have any interest in Manhattan. The only well, the Manhattan's, I mean, there's almost everywhere. It's just a mess. It's, everywhere it's, you go. It is a mess. I mean, there's one guy, I take the subway uptown in the morning when, when, I, when I take my bicycle. I work at the athletic club, so I get off the F train, 57th and uh, 6th. And there's a guy that's been living living there for four years. Yeah. I mean, at one point, he was behind. At one point, there was a building that was for sale, and he had a little thing in there that was out of the wind. And then that building got knocked down and rebuilt, and the new people were like, no way. And now, we just, now he's like, just, there's a Starbucks that lets him in and use the bathroom yeah, I'm and a- hang out. You want old Soho? There's a man currently living on the doorstep of Tiffany's at night. But the best one is there are a couple of regulars. One is a guy who used to panhandle for the United Negro Pastrami Fund in the I old love days. That name. I love that guy. And there's Chris, who's always outside Finelli's bar. They let him use the bathroom. He came in. I didn't have any money. I said, what is he like? I, they said he likes a cheeseburger. I said, put a cheeseburger on the bill. Chris says, you know, sometimes somebody buys me a steak. <laughs> oh, no way. Good God, man. I feel that you're not on the street because you turned down a reservation <laughs> at Balthazar. Shane thinks I'm an old, bleeding heart liberal. I am. My mommy was a commie. That's how I was raised. That's funny. Um, uh, David, are our second sets of guests? In? They are here. Okay. I was letting this run late because I wasn't sure. Um, thanks, you guys, so much for coming in. I mean, yeah, we thanks for having us. Thank you. We could have done the whole damn hour. It's such a great story. Yeah. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're coming to New York, if, if you're listening to this and you live in New York and you haven't been to Balthazar, I don't know why not. It's great. It's classic. It's just so worth it because there just is a magic to the place. It's been a 20-year 20 20-year 20 run. Yeah, 20 yeah. years two weeks ago. 20 yeah. years two weeks ago. It's just it's storied for a reason. Um, Keith McNally is successful for every re- every good reason possible. He's a great restaurateur, really. Yeah. Uh, on, on a par with Danny, on a par with Drew, on a par with the uh, best yeah, guys sure. in the city who've done really good work. Yeah. Um, and if you haven't been to Augustine, go. That place is just just freaking great. Yeah. Food's amazing. Uh, you and Sheena were killing it. The room's gorgeous. There's everything about that place is wonderful. 
Thanks so much. The name of the book is? At Balthazar. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Thanks so much for Thank writing it. Thank you so it. much. It's a great piece of New York history, and it's always nice to talk to someone that's been here longer than me that has an even longer <laughs> vision on this crazy town. Not that many. Stay tuned. We're going to have a couple of young ladies that have a couple of businesses on Avenue C in my neighborhood. Um... A wine bar, a wine store, and a beer store, and now they have a line of snack foods that go perfectly with wine and beer, so stay tuned for that conversation after this spot. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil is a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity, water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it, it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic, we're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in, in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, folks, Mike Calameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's 
Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. <laughs> All right, we have to clean it up here. We're back in the studio with my two guests, who are young entrepreneurs, Phoebe Connell and Nora O'Malley. Are those Irish names, both of them? <laughs> yes. Yeah, just oh, my God, a couple of Irish girls. So <laughs> what got you into this? So... Tell me what got you started, because you're on Avenue C, which is called Louisiana Avenue or something? It is, yeah. It's called Avenue C. It's what Pitt, I live down by Pitt. So Pitt becomes mm-hmm. Avenue C when you cross Houston. Right. So I have biked past, like today, I do this radio show, I live on Grand Street, Lower East Side, so I just bike straight up Pitt, straight up Avenue C, make a left hand turn on 14th, lock my bike up on the L train, and then take the L train over. So I've passed your store hundreds of times. Um, it's There's three properties in a row. There's a beer store. A wine store and this wine bar. Yeah. Yep. How did you get involved at the beginning and in which one? So I got involved first. Uh, I wa- I moved to New York to do um, my master's in food studies at NYU. God, another one. <laughs> Why We're everywhere. We're no, everywhere. and you're all like really like smart and go getters. <laughs> I have so many stories of meeting. I, I never forget there was a server. Oh, years ago. I'll tell you, I'll, I told the story. You keep going. So that, I mean, that kind of explains it. Like, yeah. I'm done with you. What's your... <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so actually, Nora and I know each other from high school. We grew up in Cleveland. Um, and then we... Go Cavs. What was that like? <laughs> oh, it was uh, lovely. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was in the 90s. The Indians were really good. It was oh, really my God. Exciting. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a golden age for Cleveland. <laughs> the golden age. Okay. The great years of Cleveland. <laughs> yes. 96, 97. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, that it, Indian team. Shit was the shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, but so I, I started working, um, at ABC beer co they had just opened. I was, um, I had, I was also working in specialty food and they have a specialty food section in the front. I got into beer and, um, one of the owners who owns the wine store, um, two doors down was looking for a manager and I put something up on Facebook, Nora responded. And then the rest is history. So then we were managing, the two businesses and the space in between was empty for years. And then we, the, a for rent sign went up in the window and we immediately were like, we're going to do something. So you're the leases. Yeah. Yes. Your name's on that. On Lois. Yeah. Are they ever? <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Are you guys 30 yet? No. I just turned 30 like two weeks ago. I'm 31. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a good thing. I know, like thirty is like one of those weird numbers that people have. In their no, head. it's just a temporary. It's only occasion. when you're twenty eight and twenty nine, I think. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so thirty and thirty one years old, you have a lease, but then you have to build this place. And the concept was what? Wine on tap. So, which is interesting. So for people not familiar with this, because we're everyone that goes to a restaurant realizes beer and sodas on tap, but wine comes from a bottle, and there's a cork or maybe a screw cap or something, and you pour it into a glass, and it comes in liters or it comes in seven to fifty milliliter bottles, and there are various permutations of that. But the whole kegged wine thing, when did that start, and where? So, I mean, it's been around for a while, specifically like in Europe, they do it because I'm sure you know, like the gas yes. station fill ups and, yes. and all of that. Um, and They're it's, always ahead of us. With I know, exactly. I mean, they've been making wine for like 6,000 years. Um, there, so. At least 6,000, yes. if not like 6,001. <laughs> um, so they, uh, I actually had lived in Italy right after I graduated college and I started teaching myself about wine through Vinos Fuso is what they call it, wine yeah. on tap. And it was in a lot of places. And, it, you know, it's not 
the stuff you want to lay down in your cellar, but it's, you know, 98% of the world's wine production is table wine and it's, right. that's what they do. Um, and so I came back to move back to New York and I was like all geared up to keep learning about wine and like, lo and behold, I could not afford it. It's like, I can't like buy a bunch of bottles. But so I started looking at this wine on tap thing. This was, you know, eight, nine years ago. Um, and it was happening a lot on the West coast. Um, yeah, not also so much, also very, <laughs> And, and not so much here. At that point, Gotham Project had just sort of launched um, with the help of Paul Greco through Terroir um, Tribeca. And so I was sort of just monitoring it, waiting for that like cross-section of quality and quantity to sort of really rear its head. And it happened at the right, the right time when Phoebe and I reconnected as friends. And we had this open space. And I told her, I was like, hey, I've had this idea. It's kind of weird. But it's super green. It's great for small spaces in Manhattan because there's no storage. You get to return all of the kegs. Nothing's corked. Nothing's corked. It's always we have, fresh. We have no bo- we have no bottles. And we Lois, the the name of our, of the bar is 493 square feet, including like a giant <laughs> bathroom. So like it is small. Yeah. So we knew that when when we had the space, we knew that we had to deal really well with the space. And and Nora said, you know, I think this is something that could work and we and then the next step was then reaching out to producers or to and to distributors and tasting everything and making sure that we could have that it really could work 16 yeah. wines on tap that that were all really really good quality and and we found out that that it did exist so, so 16 we wines yeah uh, and including ciders including we have two other lines for beer and cider so but 16 wines 16 wines so it this time of year, would it be assumed, safe to assume that you got a couple of rosés, six oh, or seven whites? We have rosé rose all year wow. now. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's sort of been like the biggest, obviously, increase in demand over the last like three or two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're having the rosé moment. Oh, yeah. The millennial Such pink. a moment. It's everywhere. Yeah. Vic, you know Victoria James over at PR? She just wrote a book about, about rosé called Something Pink. Oh, really? Sorry. Pick it up. Google it. She's cool. She's yeah. young. She's a little, well, about your age, I can't <laughs> and, her, and her her boyfriend's cool, Lyle Railsback. He's a national sales manager for Kermit Lynch. Oh, cool. So we like this cool wine nice couple. Job, They're yeah. so cute. They're yeah. always posting pictures of bottles of wine. <laughs> God bless them. This yeah. is great, great stuff. So how does, so tell me what's, tell me what's on the list now. Just, I'm just curious. Like in, in the space of reds domestically, what percentage is domestic? What percentage is? I would say we're sort of um, 50-50. I actually Old do a lot of New, New York wines, too. I, I found a lot of good stuff out in Long Island. So we have some from uh, Pomanoc on a lot. We have a great Pomanoc Cab Franc on. Um, we actually have a, also a Round Pond, Kith and Kin, Napa Cab that um, just became available in keg. So that's exciting. Some stuff from Willamette. We have some um, stuff from Terrain. We do some New World Sauvignon Blanc right now. So um, Terrain, you mean Laura Valley? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I try to hit all all aspects that I possibly can while it's still being good. Um, one of the ideas that we wanted to do with Wine on Tap is allow people to teach themselves just the same way that like I had sort of been doing it. So we offer taste like an ice cream store, like whatever you want to taste, you can do. And so I often like try to have two Sauvignon Blancs on, one from the Loire, one from New Zealand, so that people can compare um, like a Grenache and a Garnacha. I'm in the uh, Loire. Me too. Sorry, New Zealand. <laughs> me too. Another polyphenolic cat. 
pissy, oh, over tropical, fruity. You shock though it flies. This is delicious. Oh, it, it, no, it's not. It really flies. <laughs> I, I can smell it like next to me. I'm like, could you cover that? <laughs> can you make that over a little bit, please? Well, but anyway, that's just a bias. That's just because. No, I hear you. I'm the same. But they're super popular. Yeah. People oh, totally. love that. They're yeah. just attracted to that whole bubblegummy, crazy, oh, yeah. fruity. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Chardonnay too. Like we have a California Chardonnay, but then I also have a Macon Village. So it's like you know, people will taste it and be like, no, 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 I would like a Chardonnay instead. I'm like, well, that is a Chardonnay. Which one? <laughs> don't okay. they think it's Chardonnay? But like Macon Village, you know, Macomb- people yeah, want the Macomb-Village. butter, they want the oak. I mean, it's because just, what? Because I mean, it was it an American yeah. new oak exactly. with medium toast for exactly. you, and it tastes like coconut exactly. and coffee <laughs> and toffee and. Oh my god! But it's cool like that. We're like, but it's sure, so funny. It's your you tongue. Have, so even in your neighborhood, you have to sort of cater to people that are looking for a buttery chardonnay. Oh, totally. Because that's just still yeah. where we are in this country. Well, also with- like they're everywhere, and yeah. uh, you know, and everyone, everyone's taste is everywhere. So we, that's one of the things about uh, us offering so many tastes is that a lot of times what somebody says that they want is not what they mean. You know, so they're like, I <laughs> want even a close. super dry. Like really light, and then they get the buttery chard, and they're like, "I love it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Whoa. yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, and but it's that's just, the best part. We're like, "Sure, it's your turn. Yeah, you like, like it? Go for it. You go for it. Yeah, <laughs> drink it. Perfect." Wow. So you, so it's like you walk in, you're looking for like a high altitude, like a like a Jura, maybe a Poussard, <laughs> and then you say, "Well, I've got this Napa Cabernet <laughs> you're Merlot blend love it. <laughs> at fifteen high." <laughs> You were going to love it. Exactly. Oh, you're right. Or the best thing is... Trousseau. I like this. (laughs) Giving giving tastes and not telling people what what they are. Like, the number of people who choose Merlot when they don't know what it is... It's incredible. It's great. It's incredible. I know. It's It's sad. I I love it. I know. It's the American palate. I mean, it's... And it's funny, because you're... So what's the... So you're in this funny neighborhood. It's, like, really transitioning. I mean, I'm astonished, because I've been in this city. I mean, we had just... Had Shane McBride, Chef at Balthazar, and all the people in these restaurants. And he's been in the city for a while, but I've been here since '82, and I've just watched neighborhoods change. And that neighbor, that that Alphabet City thing, is just—I mean, I still remember when Giuliani cleared out Tompkins Square Park and what it used yeah. to look like. I mean, the, that, there were squatters in half the buildings back then in the '70s and '80s. Mm-hmm. Artists living for free. There's and, still one squat. Yeah, they're they're still they're still. Don't they're tell still. us where it is. We may be there. It's, no, it's crazy. But now it's like completely like gentrified. It's just like mm-hmm. astonishing. Like a, a business like yours existing is like an outlier, right? I mean, Abuela's Kitchen's like a, a block down from you, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, Casa Dela. Yeah, Casa yeah. I, mean, I love the so chicken. good. Oh, it's the best. Oh, it's the best chicken. It's the best fungo in the city. Yeah, it's the best fungo. It's yeah. ridiculous. It's like crazy. this wasn't a bad winter, but like we had a couple of winters that were like just epically horrible. Like like you're out all day and you come home and you're like. I don't want to go out. I oh, am yeah. not, and I would just call them up and, and pick up takeout and go mm-hmm. back home and be so happy. We were doing that same thing when we were opening because it was that winter like three years ago. It was so oh. cold, and we would go down and she'd be like, "Sorry, I'm out of chicken." Like, oh my god, like, what? <laughs> you can't do yeah. that. Yeah, she runs out. Oh. She runs out. So yeah, let's around. talk about the mechanics. So the what is the size? There's like how many gallons and. So it's a 20-liter keg. So 20 it's like a little keg. pony so keg. A so like 20-some bottles if you're not... 26.5. 26.5. Mm-hmm. And it's the keg thing is aluminum. And then there's this argon gas. What's the gas that's used? Yeah, we use argon. Some argon. people, you can use nitrogen. We um, just like to do overkill and do argon. It's the most expensive. But I think it's the best, most inert. Then the idea is you're keeping oxygen out. Totally, yeah. And the pipes that it's going through, they can't be plastic necessarily because you've got acid in the wine. Right. It eventually will eat through plastic. Totally. So what are they? It's like so it's a special... Glassy thing? No, they're not glassy. Um, actually just came out with a whole new brand new wine line and it's a special grade of plastic actually that's super industrial formulated type. for the lower pH. Gotcha. Yeah. 
food-wise, what do you do? It's simple. You don't have much of a kitchen. So it's like the kind of – it's like the old wine bar food, which – Forgive me for saying this. I used to call it picnic food. But that's, <laughs> sorry. That's until, like, wine bars blew up and got really bloody serious because they had kitchens. Because it used to be, like, yeah. you went to a wine bar and it was like, well, we got a hot top over there and we got a toaster and we do paninis. <laughs> and I can boil beets in the morning or roast them in my little, can, you know, cookster oven. Yeah. So it's that. It's like. It's not dissimilar from your <laughs> we have We have some we have some hot tops and we have two toaster ovens. Yeah. <laughs> like convection ovens. And we, when we originally opened, we were not expecting to do a lot of food. Um, it was a concern of the building. They didn't want smells. Um, and then was we... Is it a co-op upstairs? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's a co-op. And then we opened, and everyone in the co-op was kind of like, oh, this is great. We love this. Keep yeah. thinking more food. And we're like, well, if you had told us, we would have hooded. Yeah, and they're just like, they're just like what's, what's on your menu? Like, you got to tell us. We'll come in. And I'm like, I, you told us we couldn't have food. So we, so we actually changed the game after we opened. So... Do you have a chef chef? So Maybe. it's me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So when oh, I hate you people. <laughs> so NYU, Mary and yeah. all the yeah. smart fucking kids yeah. and all those kids in high school that sat at that table and that college ended up at NYU. No, we were the kids in high school, like literally they eating the food at every yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like I was going to like Shoving the free fun- functions, being like, "Is there gonna be a cheese plate there?" Because <laughs> I'm gonna. So actually, so when I was in high school, I um, really I cooked a ton, and I so like at home. Yeah, at home, and then out of what self defense because your mom couldn't. <laughs> no, I was just like, mom. I'm in the kitchen. So I'm going to be doing it. this. Was, was it the so TV Food it. Network? What was it that I drew know. you? I mean, it's truly uh, a passion for me. I mean, me. you're Irish. It, well, yeah. <laughs> so not exactly <laughs> known. Not I mean, you know, if your last name was something else with a it's vowel, not, I might get know. it. Well, but you're kind of looking at boiled potatoes, corned beef, overcooked vegetables, and Which is part of, of the, you know, the intervention. <laughs> I was like, guys. No, my mother is a wonderful, wonderful okay, cook. But every once in a while, my dad would cook. I was like, are we gonna eat potatoes again? Um, yes. Yes. Don't answer the potatoes. Correct. The old potatoes. <laughs> uh, but so I actually ended up as an eighteen-year-old girl working in um, one of the restaurants in Cleveland, one of the big new American restaurants. Um, on the I'm line. Not, I'm not cracking any jokes. Yeah. It's all right. I may know someone in Cleveland. I can't name a restaurant in Cleveland. But it doesn't matter. You're 18 and you're working I'm at a 18. restaurant. I'm and on that's the cool. line. The experience it doesn't matter. It's all the same. I'm, I'm the only. You're, you're a line cook. Oh, the only woman. So you're like an apron, yeah. the checked um, pants, I'm, the short sleeve shirt made out of some. There. God knows what the material is. I'm, yeah, I'm back there. So what, and so I'm just like, Are you I'm doing vegetables? You're doing fish? I was doing. I was doing mostly. Salads. I was doing mostly garbage, okay, and cold then, side. Um, and then I was moving down to oven side, which was like um, breads and um, meats, and I would never, I never got to fish. I had to, I had, I went to college before I got, before I got to saute station. Okay, well, um, fish is tough. Fish would be but, the hardest yeah, one, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you start on for one meats, end. kind of pretty wide wiggle room. Fish yeah. is like. An extra thirty seconds. I, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, right. can't can't deal with that. Um, but so I was, you know, I was an eighteen year old girl who was like, I just have to cook, and all of these guys were like, whatever. Um, and it was it was an incredible experience. And then I had um, one of the guys who kind of took me under his wing, and I think truly protected me from a lot of things that happen in kitchen. <laughs> I can't imagine. You didn't hear the earlier interview, did you? were talking about the old days. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Back in, if, so in my era, like if you, it didn't matter where you, you went, you could have graduated to the CIA. So you were full on, you're just as trained as the 
you came in, so all the kitchens were run by European chefs. It wasn't really. The Americans hadn't taken over yet. And it was just automatic. Girl comes in, resume, I have openings in pastry and garmage. Right. Like, no, no hotline job. Like, mm-hmm. never. You're going to stay in pastry, you're going to stay in garmage. That's what you do. So it was, like, really weird. That was a really hard line to break through. There, there, was, another, there was another guy who was, who was also, like, in between high school, college, trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And they promoted me above him, and it was a big deal. Like, like I moved oh, down the line over him. Um, and it was it was a big deal when I was there. So what's the menu like? Tell me what I'm going to find if I go to Lois At tonight Lois? and I pick up this <clears throat> card of yeah. choices. It's going to go from where to where and what to it's what. Gonna it's going to go. Small plates. It's it's all small it's plates. Pretty small. Should be. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you it's, can definitely it's make a meal of it. A lot of it's, people it's do. Yeah, no, you mix um, stuff. I mean, the small plates are yeah. big. That's, I'm not yeah. saying yeah. that pejoratively. Um, Restaurants are purposefully doing that. Yeah. yeah. It's like, but, we're actually moving. It's so boring. The appetizer, <laughs> main course, dessert yeah, thing. Like, so, that's so 1950s. No, people, exactly. no. Take the primary off the menu. Let's just exactly. Away. Just give me a lot of things. <laughs> yes, yeah. a lot of little stuff we can share. All the tiny uh, tasties. So because because we opened without really a, a plan for a full menu like this, it we were already open and left kind of scrambling for what to put on the menu. And so we ended up just, I like Nora and I just decided on stuff that we liked, and then we put it on the menu. So we served. Like that sounds yummy. Let's that's like not, that. That's not, I think a, that's what most chefs do anyway. Why yeah, not? Just. Eat, you know, we're so we're making what we like. So, okay. um, but so we, we, would you have like a cheese plate? So we do do cheeses, yeah. Because there's like Aunt Saxe. Are you getting your sources from like? Yeah, like and and Murray's I used to work or... in a cheese shop. So oh Jesus, what haven't you done? <laughs> I don't know. I know. I did the crunch in burgundy. <laughs> I know. I know. Cream yeah, so. Um, so, so you know, so we have we have a couple cheeses actually, um, and then we. We make bread in house, so we do. You do. We do a like a Baltic rye bread. Um, really? It's very very <laughs> modest, but like what she has done with a hallway and two hot plates oh, and two toast ovens is insane. I mean, she does pork do in house. She does arepa. She does all of her own dressings, aiolis, pickles, everything. Everything's done in house, and she's will never brag about that, but really good we, at it. We do a lot. <laughs> yeah, and actually, our cheese plate sort of became like our main focus. That was what everyone sort of kept coming back for because we're both super in love with cheese. So yeah, I am too. It's really it's become so an addiction. Good. It's, like, it's, so, it's good. so good. But I'm trying to lose weight, and like I had to like, I I will eat cheese seven nights a week after dinner. Like yeah. I'll just do that because it's so good. So I don't eat sweets. I'm not a dessert guy. Me so I'll eat a nice dinner, and then if I'm hungry like an hour and a half later, it's fucking cheese and fruit. I'm loving it. That's and then good. and then I live near the Essex Market, so I got Formaggio Italian in the back. Yeah, I got yeah. Ann Saxelby in the front. So and, good. So, and, and other options around town. And it just got to the point where, like, a year ago, I started eating cheese seven days a week, and I came home like a couple weeks ago and said to my wife, "Don't let me eat cheese. Cold I've got to go on the wagon Monday <laughs> through Friday, hard. no cheese. Saturday, Sunday, you can eat cheese. I can't do it anymore. I'm just I'm weaning myself off of it. It's and I so swear, hard. I went it's through so like good. cheese withdrawal. Like those yeah. first couple nights, I was eating cheese. My body was on like nine thirty. Cheese, mm-hmm. cheese, just a, uh. a little bit of cheese, a dry cheese. Doesn't have to be some. Doesn't have to be that camembert that they smuggled in, that oh, illegal shit. Sure. No, no, just do like a piece of cheddar, a little Jarlsberg. What can that be? It's dairy. <laughs> have enough dairy. Mm-hmm. No cheese. It's terrible. But like chemically, it is. It, an it, addictive. It is. Property. Yeah, it is. I think. Like, is it? Really, yeah, I think they it do say that. It's like a, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you've so done your already your through your withdrawal. You're great. Just keep going. <laughs> it's not your fault. I'm waiting for the weekends. I'm not through my withdrawal. Dude, I'm sitting around like it's Thursday Every now. Monday I know how many hours it is till Saturday night after dinner. I'm just waiting for that shit. <laughs> what are you gonna have on Saturday night after dinner? I'm gonna go. Like, which one are you? Gonna I don't go know. I'm gonna first. go. Shy. I will hit. I try not to 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 be too neurotic about it, but I'll hit Saxelby Stand tomorrow morning on my way down. 
and I'll go to Formaggio Italian, and I'll yeah. find something that's stinky and brush rindy and funky and delicious. And I've been pretty much in that space a lot, or, or something, mm. you know, a good age like an aged manchego that's gonna have those little salt crystals in mm-hmm. it. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and those guys, because the Bonitalia guy, not Bonitalia, whatever it's called, Formaggio, Formaggio Italian. Yeah. He's got most. He's all European cheese, and Anne's yeah. all domestic. Yeah, it's perfect. But yeah, match made in heaven. Consider Bardwell. She's got that little. Oh, those ones are so good. Dorset that I'm just. Addicted. It's killing it. It's They're so good. ridiculous. Yeah. All right. So seven days a week, six days a week. Tell me about your hours. Oh, oh seven. seven. Of course. Seven days a week. Do you, do you just see well, you get a day off? You're there when she's off. You're well, what's a day off? I don't what? Know. Good. All right. You're, I'm digging that. I'm a restaurant guy. Days off. What the? If we're not at Lois, we're working on our other business. Um, so it's I like it's oh, that's this. That's why yeah, you're here. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit, burgers. <laughs> yeah. I'm just so tell me about this because you mailed me. It was so fun. So, I got a, someone went to Staples and got a box and threw these in a stand. Went like, whoa, you guys are high tech. I love it. <laughs> but so somebody sent me those down to my Kate May on Monday and I got them and I opened them and I was like. My kid got them. I was like, what is this shit? So tell me about this brand of, what's it called? Yeah. Aida. So it's called it's called Ida for Lois Ida. Ida. So Lois and Ida. Lois, Lois and Ida. Ida. Mm, clever. Okay. I know, right? <laughs> All right, enough. So it actually, speaking of our cheese plates, it kind of started, so we do um, a pairing cheese plate, so it's a cheese, and then something that we make in-house to pair with it. So if, um, the current turmeric crisps, that was the original thing that we started serving with our sheep's milk cheese, Oso Arati, which is... Oh, great cheese. Um, and people, obviously, I think that cheese is the star of the show. Obviously. Of every day, of every show. Of, every, of everything. <laughs> but, but people would come back and say, I don't want the cheese. Can I just have these these cracker things? And I was like, what? They would be like, Why? can we buy some from you? And we're like, mm, like we really aren't set up for that. So or like, like bring right. the bag back? Like, bring the yeah, jar like, back? Like, like bring this plastic container back? Right, bring my Cambro back. I need yeah. That. We it, were like, you can have it. Like, we don't care. Take this. And, um, so where do you bake these? How do you do it? You so, have... what, so at first we were doing them out of out of Lois. So we had the current cri- or the current turmeric crisps, and we had the Szechuan candy pecans. And people insane. were going crazy Thank for you. them and asking where they could buy them. And so we were doing them out of, you know, little teensy little trays and now um, and then we decided when we were thinking of what our next step would be because we hate free time yeah um we we decided that that we would that our next business would be focusing on these things that had done really well. So now we're producing out of Brooklyn, and you can buy them kitchen. by me Molten Mold, which is up oh, on yeah. whatever mm-hmm. that street is East Broadway, I think it is. Or Canal. Or uh, it's on East Broadway. East Broadway. It's a few doors down from Mission. Where else can you, can you get them? You can buy them at Bedford Cheese Shop, Brooklyn Larder, uh, Stinky Brooklyn, Campbell's, Grape and Green, mm-hmm. Grape and Green. Green Grape. Green Grape, sorry. <laughs> Green Grape. Green Grape. Alpha City Beer Company, both Malt and so there's another one up in Gramercy yeah. as well. Um, ABC Beer, which is right beside Lois. Mm-hmm. Um, and online at www.idaeats.com. Bingo. We yeah. end the show on that note. They're freaking delicious. <laughs> Thank you. I Thanks. can't believe you brought more because I'm going to take them. Oh, yeah. I'm going to eat them. Good. And I hope I don't finish the Szechuan things tonight. Because once you get started on those bad It's hard words, to stop. Save them for Saturday hard. cheese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great Thanks with for coming on. Congratulations. I'll stop in Thank for a you. glass. You guys Please are behind see. the bar once in a while. I can, yep. You'll, you'll oh, be yeah. the friendly faces? Totally. All right. So some night when I'm biking, I'll actually lock the bike up. And okay, good. Perfect. outside and come in and try some... You know, one of those California cabs. Oh, yeah. Low blend. I'm looking for 15.5. Can't see through the glass. That's what I'm looking for. Yes. And the buttery sharks. Yeah, we got you. Thank you. All right, stay tuned. We'll be back next week. Take care, folks.
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.